that this is not a good idea, that we've made a serious mistake as a culture, as a species. Are you being imaginative? Are you trying to be yes. creative? Yes. Um, are you trying to relax? Are you trying to get something done? And so having extra reducing power in your body allows you to beat the flu faster, which means your antibodies turn on faster and they turn off faster. And antibodies failing to turn off is a basis for autoimmune disease. You know, as long as it's below your adaptive threshold, you know, you're fine. And if it goes above it, then you have dysfunction. So, you know, it was amazing. I mean, I got more work done in nine days than I would normally get done in a month. Right. I would almost be willing to argue, at least as a devil's advocate, that pretty much every aspect of civilization is disruptive of circadian patterns. You are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more on building optimal mental and physical performance into your life, visit naturalstacks.com. Brian Muncy is probably the smartest guy I know. Trust me, Muncy is the nutrition guy. Ryan Muncy's out there trying to make the world better for all of us. The Optimal Performance Podcast is bold, edgy, creative, entertaining, and epic. Brian Muncy is my go-to guy. Brian Muncy is the first guy I call. He's making people's lives better. Brian Muncy's an innovator. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Muncy. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us today. Uh, we are back with Stephen Falks for part two of a really cool conversation that we had. Uh, if you didn't catch part one, go back and listen to that from last week. Uh, Steve's expertise is in Alzheimer's and uh, the, the pathology of that disorder and how we can use lifestyle changes and, and habits to uh, prevent that. So uh, really cool episode. Go back and listen to that. But but Steve is a wealth of knowledge and we really only scratched the surface of what he can help us with uh, in that episode. So uh, he and I actually continued the conversation. You're going to see kind of behind the scenes how we took a break and uh, that led to an interesting topic that is the beginning of part two here. So uh, in part two with Steve, we're going to talk about nootropics, metabolism, uh, some circadian hacks, all kinds of little uh, you know, biohacking, if you will, tips that you can implement into your life right away uh, for some really cool benefits. So before we get back with Steve, as always, go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. If we read your review uh, on the air, we will hook you up with some free products. Uh, I'm going to read two here in just a second, uh, but before I do that, make sure you go to... Um, Make sure you go to our website. You'll be able to see the video version of this podcast uh, along with all of the links and resources and show notes, things that we talk about so that you can go down these rabbit holes and pursue the things that we're talking about. And as always, please continue to share the OPP with the people in your life that you know will benefit from the things that we're doing here, the things that we're talking about, whether it's on this episode or the podcast itself. So thanks a lot for listening. Appreciate you spending some time with us and here is Steve right after these reviews. If you hear your review here, let me know. Shoot me an email, ryan at naturalstacks.com. We'll hook you up with some free product. So Adam W. says, Muncie is killing it. Recent episodes have been amazing. Loved the hot seat episode. Adam, thank you for that. Glad you guys listened to that. If you haven't enjoyed that episode, sorry, I'm glad you guys enjoyed that episode. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. Uh, that was the Bulletproof Conference hot seat episode. Really cool um, uh, episode that we did there, a little bit different than the normal uh, interview setup. Uh, here's one from GoFit Chef. Ryan Muncie never fails at delivering solid content. The OPP articulates a harmonious combination of reputable scientific research, innovative ideas, and intelligent communication in every realm of human performance. The content is relatable to even the novice performance enthusiast. Key takeaways and inspiration are guaranteed with every episode. I always recommend this podcast to my clients, family, and friends. Please keep the amazing work going. Uh, you down with the OPP? Yeah, you know me. So go fit, chef. Thank you so much. Love that you enjoy it. Thank you for your support, and definitely thank you for sharing this. 
We'll go one more. This is from Singe Brilliant, five stars. Uh, Ryan does a fantastic job of engaging his audience and parsing his subject matters with a critical and reflective eye. Plenty of work without pomp. Sorry, plenty of wonk without pomp. Encompasses a wide range of areas from nutrition to bioenhancement to self-improvement and more. Does so in a companionable way that maintains approachability with the listener. Very good stuff here. And Muncie's a pretty awesome guy with whom to go down these rabbit holes too. So Singe Brilliant, thank you so much for your support. Uh, all you guys, thank you for listening. We, we do this for you and I'm glad that it's helping you uh, improve your life and, and go down that path of, of self-improvement. So uh, if you heard your review, shoot me an email. We'll get you some free product. Let's get on to Steve. So Steve, welcome back to the OPP. Thank you. Uh, we had a blast on the first one, and, and we're going to do this again. We uh, Full disclosure, or, or kind of peeling back the, the curtain of podcasting for our listeners, we took a, uh, we're recording this on the same day, we took a, a five-minute break, and we came back, we're recording this second part now. When you came back, you had a cup of water with paracetam in it, and you informed me that you are drinking paracetam. Uh, out of a glass cup, not a plastic cup, I, I will point out. Uh, <laughs> what's What have you discovered about drinking paracetam? Well, the first thing that I, I found out was that it actually focused my mind in certain areas where I have a natural disability. And that is in the area of speech and writing and editing, which is very ironic considering those are the things that I'm worst at and spend all of my time doing. <laughs> um, but uh, the second thing was is that some of the benefits that were happening to me weren't things that I noticed at all. They were things that my wife and my coworkers noticed. <laughs> really? Like what? <laughs> yeah. Um, multitasking abilities. Okay. I didn't realize that I had switched from monotasking to multitasking um, but they noticed because they could come up and interrupt me when I was editing something. I'm in the middle of an editing project and I moved this paragraph and I got all these segue problems in the in the article that I'm writing. And all of a sudden somebody asks me a question and it's like ah, I'm derailed. Right. That's what happens when you're monotasking. Right. And all of a sudden I could turn to them, answer their question with a smile on my face and go right back to editing. And I knew exactly where I was. OK. And and I didn't notice that. <laughs> Nice. Okay. Okay. And the third thing I noticed was that the bitter taste of paracetam grew on me. It actually developed into the bitter equivalent of a sweet tooth, where I actually have this visceral uh, connection to the taste of paracetam that my subconscious mind has identified that it likes paracetam and and that affected my taste buds. <laughs> It's really cool how our body can can do that and, and start to crave things that you know once weren't uh, you know desirable tastes. Uh, okay, so uh, so let's let's talk about smart drugs for a minute. Um, you, you've done a lot of work in that area. We're talking about paracetam. I, I think it's it, for me. It, we talk a lot about nootropics, uh, obviously. Um, and, and the one thing that I always recommend to people is that you know. You have to understand that everyone's brain chemistry is different. My experience will be different from yours, and it will be different from every from all of our listeners. Um, Very true. And, and I think one of the things that we all need to do is identify where we are on this map, so that we can chart a course of action to take us where we want to be. And and in your answer, you you clearly demonstrated that you have done that. You know where your brain is weak, you know what tasks you need to do, what your goals are for that given day, and you can plan your nootropic stack on that day for what you need to get accomplished. Um, how did you identify what those, whatever you want to call them, but, but your natural weaknesses or struggles, how did you identify the needs of your brain, your brain chemistry? Well, it was a long involved process, first of all. I mean, it's all based on trial and error and a certain skill set of self-observation. You know, how do you have metrics in your life? And back when I was working in this area, it was very difficult to do that in a way that was physiological because we didn't have the tools. It was all, you know, sensor technology just was in its infancy. 
And if I wanted to study my urine pH, I had to have a roll of pH papers, a notebook, and a pen. Mm -hmm. I had to tear off a piece of paper, touch it to the stream of urine, match the color, write it down, and then plot it on a graph. You know, <laughs> royal pain in the... Right, <laughs> right. Yes. Um, and, but nowadays, you know, things are different. We're gathering all kinds of information transparently where, you know, you can have a wristwatch that does pulse measurements and looks at, um, well, you know, you have sleep monitors that you can study your brain waves and, mm -hmm. and sleep patterns. And, there, and the, 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 the computer cost of processing information to look for patterns has been been cutting in half every year. It's mm -hmm. just been plummeting. Mm -hmm. So we now have massive computational resources. In a mm -hmm. sense, everybody's cell phone is the equivalent of in a massive industrial room full of computers in the old days. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's just it's just truly awesome. And you need this little tiny battery to power it. And, and here's the, the disappointing thing about that is that most people use those cell phones uh, to, to watch or cat videos, cat videos. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you knew I was going with that. that there's nothing but, wrong no, with cat videos, but not our listeners, our listeners you get a smile and you laugh, that's you know, true. that's, that's a, that's, that's a good neuroendocrine effect. There you go. But our <laughs> listeners are listening to, to these podcasts and educating themselves. So, um, okay. So, so identifying it through well, trial let me, and error. Let me go on with my answer. Yeah. Cause there's one aspect of this that was, was a deeper exploration, and that was uh, I wrote a, a two-article series on what I call the designer brain, mm -hmm. and this was based on um, a couple of years of self-observation where I systematically challenged every one of my neurotransmitters by loading it for sure mm -hmm. and unloading them if I could. And sometimes it was just taking an opposite neurotransmitter. So I, I learned what dopamine felt like by taking L-dopa and taking Depranil. And I learned what serotonin felt like by taking tryptophan or 5-hydroxytryptophan. And I explored my consciousness. I explored my behavior mm -hmm. under these different influences mm -hmm. to learn that I'm dopamine dominant and I'm cholinergically dominant. And so I don't need to focus on those. So I can take paracetam which has a mild anticholinergic effect mm -hmm. that in some people who are cholinergically you know, moderate mm -hmm. will deplete them and they need to take choline or some cholinergic mm -hmm. with their prastam to be healthy. But for me, it just takes the edge off of my cholinergic dominance. And so that designer brain series, I presented it at the previous mm -hmm. Bulletproof conference um, and it's also online. I can, I can give you a link to the graphic for that yeah. Um, my Google account. Yeah, that would be that would be fantastic because I, I was going to say I will find that and we'll, we'll link to that on the show notes for this episode. Um, and so um, basically, I I looked at my idiosyncrasies regarding neurotransmitters, mapped them onto an experiential map, and then looked at psychiatric manifestations of it, which were more serious that I couldn't explore. I wasn't willing to become psychotic, for example. Right. But um, I understood. The, the, the concept of going from uh, being slightly schizoid to being more schizoid, which is something I can explore in my daily life without having to have schizophrenia. When you say you kind of mapped it and looked at it on a map, was there something that you used? A graphic. I created a graphic okay. where I looked at, um, for example, uh, having two axes, right. uh, dopamine on one side and um, serotonin on the other side mm -hmm. and mapped it out. So what happens when I'm both dopamine and serotonin dominant versus having them both balanced versus being dominant in one versus the gotcha. other? Gotcha. And I explored that kind of those kinds of differences over years. Right. And finally, I wrote this uh, series of articles which are online at seri.com and um, where I kind of laid it all out of what I had observed. And that's it, it's it's an amazing. Um, I don't know. It's. I think it. It had a big impact on my wisdom. Yeah. You know, of just having a deeper understanding of myself, just as if I had studied um, Jungian psychiatry or um, uh, the Enneagram or um, the Four Energy Systems, mm -hmm. of understanding my personality types in relation to to other types that I don't understand. Right. And puzzle me because. They're not me. 
They're right. not the same as me. Well, I mean, it's 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 very much like conducting a needs analysis, and and I come from you know strength coaching and, and owning a gym, and and for me, it's like you know if, if somebody comes to me and says, hey, write me a workout program. You know, first of all, I need to know what your goals are, and second of all, I need to do a physical assessment. I need to know where you are, what you're capable of, and for some reason, in in the smart drugs or nootropics world. It's. It doesn't seem to be approached that way by everyone. Uh, <laughs> I, I certainly some yeah. people do. I know a lot of our listeners do. Um, but but so so it's, it's very valuable to to get that and do that. And I find it very fascinating that that you are uh, dopamine dominant, cholinergic dominant, um, and, and actually I am too. Uh, both of those. Um, and and I've taken the the Braverman test. So I'm curious if you've taken that. Um, but I also found out that uh, when I did, this was on a podcast a few episodes ago, we showed my going to Peak Brain Institute, doing QEEGs, getting neurofeedback, um, you know, that, that I learned that, that paracetam could, could actually help me and, and would be a good one for me too. So it's interesting that you and I are actually in, in the same uh, boat on that one, even though every, we just said everybody's different. Um, well, there's people are different in patterns. And so every once in a while, you'll run across somebody that it, it you feel like, you know, somehow there's like this spiritual mirror and you're mm-hmm. seeing yourself in somebody else. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting that, that when I've taken paracetam, I always took choline with it and I felt very spacey. And, and now, you know, knowing what I know, I know that if I boost my choline that, you know, my alpha brain waves are already a little bit higher than they should be in relationship to beta and that that would actually increase my inattention or my spaciness. And, you know, so I, I'm actually curious now after talking to you to go back and try taking paracetam without choline to see if it fixes yeah. that. There's also the right brainwave for the right situation. And so that's one of the things I noticed when I first started paracetam and I was doing like, uh, um, you know, I don't know, eight grams a day something like that, which is like, you know, triple what would be the regular dose. Mm-hmm. And I did it for nine days. And it, I, you know, it was amazing. I mean, I got more work done in nine days than I would normally get done in a month. Right. But uh, what I noticed was that the quality of life at the end of the day mm-hmm. was being sacrificed. Oh, that was going to be my first question is how did you balance that? How did you like? I backed off. Okay. And so now I do I do paracetam intermittently and I do it episodically depending upon the circumstance. So the first podcast I wasn't on paracetam. This podcast I am on paracetam. So I invite the listeners to <laughs> figure out the difference. And, <laughs> Compare and, and contrast, Steve. <laughs> but but there's there's a there's a kind of um, optimization of what you want to use your brain for. Right. You know, are you coding? Mm-hmm. Are you being imaginative? Are you trying to yes. be creative? Yes. Um, are you trying to relax? Yeah. Are you trying to get something done? Each one of those has a different kind of optimal mental profile. Exactly. I'm so glad somebody besides me is saying that because uh, I feel like a broken record saying that. So, so yeah, it, it's great. I mean, look, if, if, if we're having, if it's, you know, whiteboard day and, and the team is together and we're strategizing and we're masterminding or brainstorming, you know, you need to be able to think quickly and, and laterally and do that stuff. That's a different task for your brain than trying to bang out 10,000 words, you know, on a novel or, you know, like on you a said, deadline. Yeah. Or coding. So, so it's, it's goal dependent. And that's, again, like you mentioned in your very first answer, like this is what you need to do today. This is why you're taking it. So, um, okay. So, uh, we'll, we'll move off of smart drugs and, and nootropics, but, but I think that's very valuable for our listeners. Um, so, so thank you for, uh, drinking your paracetam and, and giving the, uh, the, the, I guess, jumping off point for this. Um, I, I really want to talk about uh, aerobic energy. Uh, I think this is a very misunderstood concept, um, especially when it relates to uh, fat loss and, and habits and, and you know people choosing their exercise protocols. But you've talked about it and how it's a foundation for big, big-brained beings. I don't know why that's a tongue twister for me, but it is. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on, on aerobic exercise? Well, 
being aerobic and aerobic exercise are actually two divergent subjects. Mm -hmm. It's true that when you're doing aerobic exercise, you're in aerobic metabolism, at least until you push your threshold beyond the whatever your aerobic threshold is. Mm -hmm. So if you're exercising and you gradually increase your level of exertion, at some point you're going to cross over. Yep. And when you cross over, you see changes in your oxygen CO2 ratio and you see the beginnings of the accumulation of lactic acid in your deep tissues, which gives you your pain the next day. And, and just to clarify for our listeners, we, we've had Mark Sisson on the show. Uh, you and I, Steve, know that, that you're familiar with Mark. And, and if you haven't read Primal Endurance or the Primal Blueprint, those are fantastic resources for this. But Mark describes, you know, so, so we have the, uh, the what we would typically call the fat burn, for lack of a better word, uh, zone, which is under that first threshold. And then there's a bracket of threshold one to threshold two that is typically called the cardio zone. And then above that is, uh, you know, the intense zone, the red line zone. And, and typically if we're doing high intensity intervals, we're above that second threshold. But that middle bracket is what Mark refers to as the black hole. And that's what he's, you know, coming from his world of endurance training. He's trying to help people understand that that's not where we want to live, that we want to avoid that. So you either want to go slower and stay under that first threshold or really push and go above that second threshold. Well, there are – your body adapts to the stresses. And so if you never go above that first threshold, your body is only going to adapt to low-level exercise. Right. Um, so going above it is certainly necessary. But each level that you go into causes different kinds of stress. So right. if you're going to – deplete your creatine kinase so that your your backup energy systems become more robust, you need to deplete them in order to have that happen. And if you don't push yourself beyond that 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 energy storage limit, you're never going to get that part of your system exercised. Yeah, and, and so to clarify. The, the, the core principle is metabolic exercise, not muscle exercise, but metabolic exercise. Yes. And and, and that's that's what yeah, to clarify, he's not saying never to be in that zone, but that that shouldn't be your primary. You don't live there. Right. That's not yeah. your primary zone. Um, don't live there. Visit. Exactly. Don't live exactly. There. And if you had to pick one to live in, it would be that below that threshold. And that's where we build work capacity. Um, you know, if you think about, you take somebody who's not fit, take a, an overweight, you know, 60 year old man and he goes up the stairs and if his heart rate gets, you know, to 150 and he's technically in that fat burn zone, you know, with, with some training and some adaptation, he could go up those stairs without his heart rate getting that high. That's a sign that his fitness has increased or improved. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, and the that's, recovery time, how long does it take the heart rate to come back down to normal once you do that kind of exertion? Right. So I, that's just kind of to, to set a background and, and to clarify for, for listeners. But, you know, you're, I guess, I, I love the fact that you, you just what you just said. It's it's metabolic exercise. Look at it as you know I'm training energy systems and and fuel pathways as opposed to muscle or you know for for fat loss or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's your body is an adaptive system and you're exercising all those adaptations, all those adaptive capacities. You're exercising them. So catching the flu exercises your immune system. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so if you if you it takes four days to beat the flu as opposed to 14 days to beat the flu, it means a night and day difference in how your immune system is operating. Yeah. And so having extra reducing power in your body allows you to beat the flu faster, which means your antibodies turn on faster and they turn off faster. And antibodies failing to turn off is a basis for autoimmune disease. So any kind of aerobic incompetence has these consequences like autism or autoimmune disease or senility syndromes. Mm -hmm. And we can recognize which parts of the, of the system, when maladaptive, lead to increased risks of those kinds of conditions. So if we're choosing our exercise with, uh, just like with nootropics, as, as if we're looking at it as what is our goal, what's our desired outcome? If, if our desired outcome is to facilitate cognitive function, um, what would be your recommendation for uh, exercise? Oh, interval um, training, um, you know, where you, um, you push the intensity, mm -hmm. aerobic intensity. Um, but that's not to say that weightlifting and stress training um, is bad at all. It just has a different kind of benefit in terms of 
um, instead of challenging your energy systems, you're challenging damage control systems, damage repair systems, healing systems mm-hmm. by strength training. Well, and, and I think that they're all part of the equation. And, you know, each person decides you have this kind of idea of what constitutes a state of health for you. And whatever that mental image is, if you match it, you're going to be happier. You're going to be more fulfilled. You're going to be more integrated between your conscious and your subconscious and your unconscious levels of mind. Well, since we're talking about metabolic exercise, let's talk about metabolic typing for us and break that down. Uh, well, there are all kinds of different metabolic typing systems. And uh, uh, there's, uh, you know, Watson's fast and slow oxidizers. There's um, autonomic, the, the sympathetic dominance and parasympathetic dominance systems. And those systems use the same levels, same classifications of nutrients. So if you divide nutrients into sympathetic and parasympathetic, it's also the same division for um, aerobic and anaerobic um, uh, or fast oxidizer and slow oxidizer. But when you look at Emmanuel Ravisi's um, metabolic balance system, which could be called anabolic or catabolic or aerobic and anaerobic or alkaline or acid, the nutrients divide in opposite direction. Instead of dividing this way, they divide that way. And I think that's deliberate because the um, the the Ravisi's metabolic balance is kind of a bottom-up system. This is something that goes all the way back to single cells, um, where different kinds of chemicals have different characteristics metabolically. Different minerals do, where they have an even number of electrons or an odd number of electrons, have opposite metabolic character. It, it goes back to that kind of primitive level. And then later, when we develop multicellular life, um, this, the, to create greater stability, we didn't want to divide it the same way because now you've got the fragility of having only one control system. Yeah. We divide it in an opposite direction so that we now have systems where if one, there's a malfunction at one level, it doesn't, it doesn't penetrate into the other level. There's a, a kind of stability that's mm-hmm. created by diversity. Um, uh, and I, I, don't, I don't know if we want to – I mean we could spend the entire rest of this talk – going into all of the details about how you might look at whether you're a synthetic dominant or parasynthetic dominant or whether you're a fast oxidizer or slow oxidizer. There's lots of books out there on this subject that have been going on for, you know, 40, 50 decades or 50 years. Um, so um, I don't necessarily want to spend my time dealing with that, but it's, 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 a, it's a really valuable thing to explore. Yeah, to know so- your metabolic type. So, so that we don't get sucked down that, that hole and, and spend the rest of the time talking about it, what, what would be, if, if you had to recommend a book for each of those, um, where should we send our listeners to, to you know, further that? Metabolic, uh, no, uh, Nutrition Solutions um, by uh, Crystal and Haig. Um, uh, Wolcott wrote a metabolic balancing book that's, that's good. Um, his questionnaire is unmanageable, but his information is fabulous. Um, going back to the seminal works of, uh, uh, what is it, George Watson or, um, um, uh, uh, I wouldn't recommend Ravisi. Um, okay. uh, his book is, is inscrutable. Um, it's the most difficult book in, that I've ever read in my life. And I actually liked organic chemistry. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, um, it, it is, some of the best insights that I've ever seen of any scientist. I would put Emmanuel Ravisi as being probably the best uh, medical scientist of the last century. Um, I would elect him to nominate him for that position. Um, He was just brilliant in a lot of different ways. And um, because of his uh, education in turn of the century Europe, um, he, he came to the U.S. with a kind of uh, lack of blinders that, that U.S. researchers have. And he was able to uh, diversify his investigations into a whole variety of, sub, of aspects of health where um, U.S. researchers and, and U.S. government-funded research projects were afraid to go. Um, and so I've learned more from him and reading his book, even though um, it, it was difficult, it was incredibly rewarding. And anything that you can rev- read on Ravisi's 
technology and the lay public. And so I have an article in on on the SERI website um, in the forefront section. There's a previous newsletter that I have there where I talk about his system and what does it mean. And it turns out that when Ravisi categorized things in terms of aerobic and anaerobic, um, the aerobic things were antiviral and the aerobic thing or the yeah, the aerobic things were antiviral and the anaerobic things were proviral. And I actually wrote a book, which is on Project Wellbeing, that's a free download, where I explain how this works in terms of our susceptibility to viral diseases. So, you know, what's the difference between somebody who has regular herpes flare-ups and somebody who doesn't have any herpes flare-ups? It isn't that one is infected and the other one isn't. It's that one person has susceptibility to the virus and the other person doesn't. And so the virus looks at one person as being, oh, it's time to party. And the other person, it's, oh, time to wait. Let's just wait. Let's wait. Let them get really, really old and feeble. And then it flares up. Hmm. And we see this in autopsies for people with Alzheimer's disease. When you look at an Alzheimer brain and you see all these plaques in it and you do an assay for herpes virus, you find high viral titers in people with Alzheimer's disease, higher than in people who don't. So the browned out Alzheimer's brain is a viral susceptibility environment. So here's an example of metabolic balancing influencing your response and susceptibility to viral disease. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and just in case people are listening to this episode and, and haven't heard the first one, uh, we talked about browning out and, and a lot of this metabolic decline in uh, the first part. The first one. Uh, so, so if you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen to that, um, and, and you can get clarification on all that. So, um, to to go, you mentioned a minute ago on like top down, bottom up hacks. Can you can you distinguish for our listener the difference between those and, and give us some example? You can think about it as in and out. Um, I like top down just because it it it. It's visually easy to understand from the perspective of a person standing there that their brain at the top would be, you know, the mind and the spirit and the emotions and the entire neuroendocrine system mm -hmm. as being like puppet strings um, manipulating the underlying biochemistry and adaptive systems to keep the organism surviving. So if you're under stress, there's a mechanism that activates your adrenal gland, and if you if you're if you're um, worried, you have a, you know manipulation. If you are happy versus sad, you're working in a dead end job, you're being abused all the time. Um, your will to live gets sabotaged by these mechanisms, these top down mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Then the bottom up stuff would be your nutrition, you know, vitamins, minerals, the building blocks, the amino acids, the building blocks of your structure, the the factors that give you enzymes and coenzymes that make the enzymes do work. And then you have metabolism, which is slightly above that, which is the dance of all those molecules with each other, the control, how they influence each other, feedback loops and stuff like that is all from the bottom up. And health is in the middle between these. We need to have the healthy bottom-up systems working the way they're supposed to, and then we have to have the healthy top-down control systems working in order to stay in that zone of health. You toss a drug into the system because something's not working right. You toss a drug into the system. You suppress the system. Well, the feedback loops to correct the underlying or overlying problems never get addressed. And when you say toss a drug in, you're, you're just kind of referring to the, the American medical system of throwing a prescription at something. Yeah. Symptom suppression medicine. Right. right. Yeah. And it just perpetuates the underlying bottom-up dysfunction, whatever that might be, and it's, it might be, let's say, a, um, a copper sequestration problem. Mm -hmm. um, well, let me say copper deficiency right. as an example of something that's purely bottom-up. Mm -hmm. And then a top-down system might be um, the copper sequestration from an inflammatory response. So once your body... Um, activates an inflammatory response, your brain starts organizing your, your, your immune system and your cytokines go up and those cytokines trigger inflammatory mechanisms throughout the body, vasodilation, vasoconstriction, um, you know, uh, shifting in uh, immune responses and antibody levels. Um, all of that plays a role in the bottom-up systems and the top-down systems are working with respect to each other. 
Gotcha. Okay. Um, well, so speaking of hacks, uh, let's talk about some circadian hacks. We, we talked a little bit at the end of part one uh, about how we, we sort of live in this artificial world that is so far removed from you know, uh, the, the, the natural world, the world that exists outside of you know, modern civilization. Uh, what are some circadian disruptors that we are all exposed to and, and how can we kind of hack that? Well, um, and it, I would almost be willing to argue, at least as a devil's advocate, that pretty much every aspect of civilization is disruptive of circadian patterns. Um, even choices of foods, when we eat them, whether we eat cooked foods or not cooked foods, all of those things have the potential for being this. But the classic issues would be the wake-sleep cycle, right. you know, light being in, ton in tune with the sunrise and the sunset and the midday as being the source of blue light and the morning and the evening being sources for red and infrared light, that that signal is now gone. We live in an artificial lit environment. Mm -hmm. So restoring it is an issue of cultivating red light when you wake up, blue light in the middle of the day, and red light when you're going to sleep at night. So... Uh, same thing with negative ions. If you live in a house with a central air conditioning system, this metal ductwork, um, you have the potential of having a depletion of negative ions. Well, you can put a negative ion generator in your house. Um, if you if you want to take a, a break, you can go outside and turn on the, the the sprinklers. If you don't live in California during the drought, and and just you know experience the the joy from having water sprayed over your lawn and just breathing the air that's blowing off your lawn or going into your shower even though you get you know chlorine or chloramine in your shower you're still getting the negative ions so you know ask yourself the question do you feel better when you take a shower <laughs> i mean it kind of goes to the issue of whether or not you might be negative ion responsive or not so um, I do a lot of things, um, melatonin, uh, liposomal melatonin before I go to bed at night. I do that at least two, three times a week. Um, once a week, I'll do a tryptophan collagen um, uh, drink before I go to bed for especially deep sleep when I know I don't have to wake up at any particular time the next morning. Um, I do um, – I've done phenylalanine in the morning when I wake up, sublingual phenylalanine. Um, that's a, I've even done that back when I was, did my first talk, um, uh, you know, when I was first learning to overcome stage fright. And I would have to do, for example, uh, a workshop where I was, you know, being exposed to um, cameras and being in front of the camera and behind the camera and just immersing myself for an entire weekend in the camera, mm -hmm. it would be like, you know, how do you get by with four and a half hours of sleep back when I was young and stupid? Right. Uh, and and I, so I would, I would, right before I would fall asleep, I would take some phenylalanine in a capsule, put it in a second capsule, um, and then swallow it so that while I was asleep at night, the phenylalanine would kick into my system and wake me up so that four and a half hours of sleep, I'd be able to do the next day, you know, 12 hours of, of concentrated work without, you know, being dysfunctional. That, so, that is a great hack. I've, I've never heard that one. Uh, so you, you <laughs> double encapsulate it to slow the slow, slow down, down how long it takes to, the, to digest yes. the capsules and, and get into the bloodstream. So. Um, just for our listeners who may not realize, you know, phenylalanine, it, it's, it's, it's actually in Siltep and it's in our dopamine brain food because it, it goes down that dopamine pathway. Is that why you were using that amino acid? I was using it for norepinephrine. Okay. But it's the same idea. You're altering your neurotransmitters and norepinephrine, epinephrine, and dopamine are all produced from that. And those are um, vigilance neurotransmitters and arousal neurotransmitters. So those are the things that are optimum during the day when you're trying to get stuff done. Right. And then serotonin and GABA would be more dominant at night when you're trying to sleep and recognizing that, I mean, of all the different things you're going to study in your brain function, it's not just an issue of the importance of paying attention to when you're awake. I mean, it's true that how you are awake today has, is dependent upon how you slept last night. Right. But if you can actually monitor your sleep, 
that's probably one of the most powerful technologies that you could possibly use to monitor your health and to learn what's a good choice and a bad choice in terms of your lifestyle. So what are your favorite ways to monitor sleep? Well, um, the, it's EEG is the best way to do it, and there isn't a good system now, um, I, at least that there isn't in the last year, um, but there are people working on it. Um, the old Zio system was the first foray into that technology, and it was just one EEG sensor in the center of the forehead. Okay. Um, and what I would like to see would be a band running across the, the, the forehead where you have multiple sensors and it's using a, a more complicated analysis, but that, that's what I would prefer to see being developed and there are people working on that. But direct EEG measurement is better than reverse engineering um, movement patterns and right. breathing patterns and heart rate patterns and stuff. But actually there's no reason not to do the combination because, you know, breathing, it's it's passive, you know, it's so easy and cheap to measure. Heart rate, easy to measure. Um, uh, movements related to rapid eye, and um, that's, that's all so easy to measure that there's no reason not to correlate all of it. Right. So that's what I think that's, that's happening right now as a, as, a, as a major trend is that sleep research is transitioning from a laboratory environment mm -hmm. into your natural sleep environment. Yeah. So instead of going to a sleep lab and having your sleep studied in an artificial environment, which is alien in smell, alien in sound, alien in every way, you actually can now study your sleep in your native environment where it's actually you're measuring yourself um, in your real life. Um, and you could do it every single night, not just right. the, the one night that, that you participate in the sleep study. So, so that allows you to introduce lifestyle changes and look at before and after transitions exactly. to judge, is that a good decision or is that a bad decision? Exactly, exactly. Um, so, I mean, we're talking about some, some wearables and measurables here, not necessarily mention them by name. What are some of the ones that you use? What are some of your favorites uh, if, if you are using them? I've only used the Zio device um, and the um, uh, Bedit device, okay. and um, I have to say, you know, they're not—they're not up to my standards. Okay. And and but I know that there are cell phone apps, um, but because I don't own a cell phone, I I can't use them and study them, but. Um, I've seen a lot of issues regarding their methodologies that don't make sense to me. And more importantly, that the interface of people using the tools is awkward and it's strained. And there's, there's all kinds of things that I would like to be able to do and questions that I'd like to be able to ask that just aren't supported. Right. You don't own a cell phone. Why? Um, well, I like the idea of being off when I'm off. When I walk away from my phone, um, I really want to not be interrupted. So I either go off and I paint. Um, so I do, I, I, you know, I do can, you know, my own canvases and I paint. Mm -hmm. um, that's a kind of creative release for me. Or I go off and I prune bushes and, and take care of plants in a garden and stuff like that, communing with, you know, living systems as a as a release and those give me an antidote to sitting in front of a computer all day. I love it. I, I love it. I think that's great. Did, did you have a cell phone and get rid of it or have you just never had one? Well, um, I had one when I was married and that we, that she used and we used it when we were traveling. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> There's a real advantage for emergency road services to have a cell phone. Right. Um, but, um, the, the, since I work at an office that uh, where I'm there most of the time, it, it's not necessarily it's not really advantageous for me to have that kind of instant access. Right. Although there are times when I've missed it, but the issue of of um, of EMF radiation and I mean, it's it worries me enough that I've hardwired my entire house. So it, rather than use Wi-Fi. I put in Ethernet cables to every room in the house. 
um, so that we don't need Wi-Fi here. So that's I, I take that issue of, you know, certain minority of people being canaries in the minefield for EMF mm-hmm. as a warning sign that this is not a good idea, that we've made a serious mistake as a culture, as a species, allowing unrestricted um, EMF pollution to pervade our environments. So uh, aside from hardwiring the, the house, do you also use EMF filters? I do. So that's, a, you mean the dirty electricity yeah. filters? Yeah. Yes, I do that too. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's, um, those are all things that I can't control in the sense that other people use cell phones and all. But the primary exposure that, I, that is controllable is the broadcast from the cell phone to the tower. And that you know, puts a radiation directly into your head because the antennas in the modern cell phones are spherical antennas. They, the, the field that they generate is radial. Right. Um, there are butterfly antennas that, that they've created that have a figure eight you know, broadcast lobe mm-hmm. that uses interference patterns. And so the lobe of broadcast energy goes in front of your head and behind your head instead of into your head. But the cell phone companies won't use them. Well, it would affect coverage and, I mean... No, it actually, it actually, the energy that goes into your head interferes with the efficiency of connecting to the cell tower. And so it takes, I think, 3% more energy to reach the cell tower with a spherical antenna than it does with a, with a butterfly antenna. So with a butterfly antenna, your battery would actually last longer. So why are they not using them? It implies that there's a danger. It implies a liability to the industry. But there is. I know. But they don't want it to be discussed. They don't want it to be um, acknowledged. Okay. All right. So you guys heard it here first on the OPP. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You said said two other things earlier when we were talking about circadian hacks. I I, I don't want to not discuss those. Potentially, the, the shorter conversation is on the tryptophan and collagen drink that you do before bed. What is, what is that recipe exactly? Well, the one that works for me, I've experimented with a variety of tryptophan and protein doses. And it's, it, first of all, it's, it's, um, I use tryptophan powder, mm-hmm. but because the, my dose is 200 milligrams, my ideal dose is 200 milligrams, which is almost half of a 500 milligram capsule, mm-hmm. you can just take a capsule and pull it apart and either make two doses mm-hmm. with a capsule or you can dump half the capsule in and put the capsule back together for the next time you do it. Yeah. And so uh, capsules actually work fine for that other than if they have binders of excipients and fillers in it because part of the process is that tryptophan – um, as a purified nutrient, isn't very soluble in water. Right. It doesn't dissolve in tea. It doesn't dissolve in, in juice. It doesn't dissolve in water. It just floats on the top of it. Um, and so when you put the predigested collagen powder into the, into, your, into, the, into the liquid, those peptides actually solubilize the tryptophan. So this is a huge advantage. Because tryptophan in a capsule form is absorbed over hours – it has a very broad you know, effect, right. and the body has a maximal opportunity to trash the tryptophan while it's coming into your body. There are inflammatory mechanisms that are, that are designed to destroy the tryptophan. And if you happen to be one of those people with inflammation who don't handle tryptophan um, gracefully, you want to get the tryptophan into your system as fast as possible through your bloodstream and into your brain where it makes serotonin before the body has a chance to, to tear it apart. And so dissolving the tryptophan is a great way to do that. You, you know, it's just like immediately available for absorption and um, the, the collagen protein solubilizes it and the collagen protein is deficient in those amino acids that would compete against the tryptophan. So you get both a, fat, a, a speeding up of the absorption mechanism and a facilitation of its transport through the blood-brain barrier all in the same product, all in the same formula recipe. And it's two teaspoons of the collagen powder and 
um, 200 milligrams of tryptophan in whatever liquid you want. And it can be three or four ounces of water. It, it just takes longer to dissolve. Or it could be, you know, eight or 12 ounces of water. Mm-hmm. Um, the system is not only useful for, you know, I use it for sleep. Right. But I have clients who use it to handle carb cravings. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the really interesting facets of mm-hmm. carb is that when you when you eat sweets and simple carbs, even starches that convert into simple carbs, those carbs alter the amino acid balance in the bloodstream and facilitate tryptophan transport through the blood-brain barrier. Mm-hmm. So many people become addicted to carbs because they have that, that serotonin hit from the tryptophan. And by taking a sip, not the whole 200 milligrams, but just a sip or a gulp, uh, swallow of that mixture, they get this serotonin hit that they would otherwise get from sugar without the need to consume any sugar at all. You know, that's really fascinating. Um, we, we've talked about that uh, actually on the show before. Um, if you haven't tried our serotonin brain food, um, after we stop recording, give me your address and we'll send you some. Uh, we'd love for you to try it and experience that. But uh, when we launched that product, we, we had Abelard Lindsay, our product creator, uh, on the podcast, and we talked about that, the, the connection between carbohydrate cravings and, and serotonin deficiencies and uh, that whole relationship. So um, very fascinating. And that's a great hack both for sleep and for carb cravings. I, I love and it. And it can also work for alcohol. Yeah. I don't know if you've uh, ever tried it with anybody with uh, uh, with an alcoholic um, predisposition, but that craving for sugar and the craving for alcohol are often the same mechanism because alcohol causes the liver to convert glycogen into blood sugar, mm-hmm. and so you get a sugar hit from just drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more to alcohol addiction, but right. that's certainly one potential mechanism. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so, so the other, uh, the other thing I wanted to, to question you on was, uh, you mentioned the, like eating and, and cooked foods, not cooked foods. How can that impact circadian rhythm? Well, there's a, <clears throat> there's a digestive burden to raw food. Um, it takes much more of your energy so, uh, to digest raw food. And so if your purpose is to lose weight, um, that can be advantageous to, to go raw. Um, there's also a higher phytotoxin content in raw food, and that maximally stimulates your liver to detoxify all those phytotoxins, which has secondary benefits regarding cancer. Mm-hmm. Okay? As long as those my, uh, you know, toxins, uh, phytotoxins don't overwhelm you in some way. Right. You know, as long as it's below your adaptive threshold, yeah. you know, you're fine. And if yeah. it goes above it, then you have dysfunction. So right. where that threshold is, you can you can certainly try it on. Um, but I just I just think that this is on some level antithetical to being human. That on some level, um, that a raw vegan diet is only suitable to adults. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that the developing human brain needs the energy, the extra energy that you get from cooking and that it's fundamental on that level. Now, it's possible, I believe, that one could modify a vegan diet with, um, for example, sufficient coconut oil and things like that to solve the energy problem for you know infants and children. But I don't know that most people are smart enough and savvy enough to figure all that out. I don't think we know enough. I certainly don't know enough to do that. Do you think that that the developing human could, with that raw vegan diet, even if they supplemented with coconut oil for, for energy requirements, are you at all worried about missing out on uh, the, the protein and, and the fats that would come from animal sources? Well, um, Yes. I mean, I think protein is a significant issue, but um, fat is a, is a huge impact in the human brain. Right. Um, a human brain is a massive, has a massive fat content, and I think that's, um, that's not just – I mean, it's a very simplistic level for it. The main issue for human intelligence, I think, has to do with the way 
human neural networks are created, mm -hmm. that you have different parts of the brain as they're growing up in these cell populations that send out these exploratory fibers, nerve growth, you know, extensions, axons and dendrites that are broadcast across the brain to connect to target tissues mm -hmm. on the opposite sides of the brain. And so there are these broadcasting things that are taking place with different phases of development. And then the ones that connect properly um, are supported and maintained. Mm -hmm. So once the neuron gets to the other side and connects with the right pathway, it sends a message back to the cell saying, yes, we did it. And those neurons that connect to the wrong areas, the message comes back either there's no message that comes back or the message comes back, we're badly connected, mm -hmm. and that neuron dies. Mm -hmm. And it dies in a programmed cell death manner, apoptosis, and those nutrients are absorbed by the neurons in the cells that are connected properly. And so that broadcast and pruning and broadcast and pruning is taking place at multiple stages of brain development. And all of that is incredibly energetically dependent. Mm -hmm. Massive quantities of energy are involved in that process, and any restraint of energy is potentially deleterious to the complexity of the, the resulting network that's created. So during that process, especially in utero and especially in the first two years of life, that's the most dramatic phase. And that's why Down syndrome children have mental retardation, is that there's interference in that pruning process from birth to age two years of age. That's when that um, a massive amount of brain development and, and, and pruning takes place. And um, that's because our brains, are, our brains are so big that we have to do it after birth. Otherwise, you know, women couldn't give birth. They die right. in childbirth all the time. Right. As it is, it's, it's twitchy right. for women. Um, but there's also development that takes place with the advent of the adrenarchy at age seven, and then puberty at age 11 to 14, 15, whatever it is, that each of those hormone developments causes a different kind of brain development that takes place. And your brain needs to have that energy at that time to do it to maximum benefit. Okay. So once you reach 21, 22, 23 years of age, I, there, there may not be that much brain development going on. And therefore, at that point, you can cut back on your energy um, without risk of a loss of developmental potential. Okay. Okay. Um, now, I'm, I'm reminded of, of a topic that I wanted to, to go over with you, and, and we haven't yet. So, so let's talk polyunsaturated fats. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of brain development and uh, yeah. uh, all these connections in our brain. Um, well, the first thing that I would tell you and, that, and your readers is that the whole concept that polyunsaturated fatty acids are essential is based on a research study that is questionable. And so um, I don't actually think that it's yet been scientifically proven that essential fatty acids are, in fact, in fact essential. Um, but beyond that, there's all kinds of benefits. I mean, the human brain is massively polyunsaturated. Mm -hmm. And if there's any interference in the natural synthesis of polyunsaturated fatty acids, um, there's an obvious benefit to supplementing them. Mm -hmm. And many of them are anti-inflammatory. So if you have an inflammatory condition, um, it can be, you know, very therapeutic. There's, but there's a dark side to polyunsaturated fatty acids. And um, part of that is that the 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 more polyunsaturated fatty acid is, the more likely it is to become peroxidized if your antioxidant defense system gets weak. If this redox environment shifts towards a more oxidized state, all of those polyunsaturated fatty acids are at risk of, of becoming peroxidized. And then they're um, mutagens, carcinogens, and teratogens. So there, that's a very deep, dark you know, dark side of, of polyunsaturated fatty acids. And if you take them supplementally, instead of having your brain synthesize them and deposit them, you know, internally, if you take them orally, they not just go to your brain, but they go off to, into your skin. And, in, you know, all of your skin then becomes susceptible to wrinkles and skin aging, photo, photo aging effects of the skin. And um, that otherwise wouldn't be there because 
your skin doesn't synthesize those fatty acids, uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids. It knows that this is not right, so your skin doesn't make them, but your internal organs do, and your brain makes huge quantities of them. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of evidence that people don't do their desaturases and their elongases um, efficiently anymore, that there's a lot of these environmental factors and poisons and fluoride and stuff uh, sabotage those enzymes that make those brain-specific polyunsaturated fatty acids. Okay, so uh, in a word, um, supplement or dietary, better source? For fatty acids? Uh, especially I, I would especially say polyunsaturated. Polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, treat them like a drug. That's my best advice. Think of them as if you were taking a statin or aspirin or um, a beta blocker, you know, a blood pressure drug, whatever. Treat them in that kind of category. When Ravisi studied all the different nutrients in terms of their anabolic catabolic effects, polyunsaturated fatty acids were all the way out at the extreme for catabolic. So these things are not um, benign. They are highly active. And to some people, that's actually used therapeutically. In other words, the, the, because they're so catabolic, they're out in this extreme, they tend to compensate for people with low metabolic activity. So people with autoimmune diseases, people with chronic fatigue syndrome, people with um, uh, um, um, I'm trying to think of you know, other kinds of psychiatric conditions, schizophrenia, schizoid syndromes, um, um, uh, respond very positively to supplements, um, PUFA supplements, because they raise your metabolic rate. They do it by opening up your cell membranes and making them more permeable so that you get a higher flux of material in and out of the cell, um, which makes the cell more metabolically active. But that's not a benign benefit or a benign effect like you would get if you raised your metabolism by exercise or you raised it by negative ions or you raised it by thyroid hormone. Right, right. There's a trade-off. There's a trade-off. So, um, and and obviously, I mean, we're going to get plenty of those uh, polyunsaturated fats in our diet, especially if we're eating nuts or seeds, which uh, you've written about. You actually like for people to grind their own seeds at home right before they eat them. I also suggest that people use BHT as a preservative to protect those sensitive fats um, during storage and potentially during use. So this is one of those things where I'm kind of a, um, uh, you know, an anathema in the community because I've written an entire book about the therapeutic applications of a food preservative. Right. <laughs> um. But but just just for our listeners, you know those those polyunsaturated fats are incredibly fragile and delicate, and as soon as they're exposed, um, you know, like you, you, you've, I guess in your as words, soon as you expose them to oxygen, right, they start to peroxidize. But yes. but we want to do that, and it's, I guess I'm trying to go backwards. I, I skipped a step. It's important that that we break those shells uh, before we eat them. So like if you're looking at chia seeds or pumpkin seeds, they'll just go straight through you if you just swallow them whole. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so most we, of it will go through you. Yeah. So we do want ground or milled or especially ground at home to minimize that time that they're exposed to oxygen. Right. Okay. Yeah. And if you have your seeds that have been stored under BHT vapor or rosemary vapor, then when you grind them, you're grinding the antioxidant into the essential oils. So it does have a preservative action in the minutes to hour it takes to go from being a whole seed to being in your stomach. So for, for people who may not want to make that jump straight to BHT, if, if we were going to try to do that with rosemary, how would is there a way we can do that at home? Yeah. You can just take rosemary and put it in a packet and drop it into your seed container. Okay. And, and yeah, that- vapor. Any, any spice like rosemary that has this you know smell that you mm-hmm. can smell, that means there's a vapor there, and that vapor will transmit from the rosemary seeds through the airspace mm-hmm. onto the surface mm-hmm. of the seed where it's acting as an antioxidant. That's how BHT vapor works. I mean, in the old days, we used to have cereal come in boxes where the cardboard mm-hmm. and the paper lining mm-hmm. had BHT in it. Right. And the, so the BHT vapor was 
was coming out of the packaging than surrounding our cornflakes to prevent them from going rancid. Right. Um, I've done this with BHT, with coffee, with marijuana, with spices, and you can have spices that are five years old that you can't tell are five years old. Wow. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Um, so that's that's all. It's fascinating, really cool. I think there's a lot of really actionable and and, and immediately implementable tips in in this episode. So, um, Steve, thank you so much for for spending a, a, a lot of time with us today and, and on these two episodes. Uh, for you guys listening, we we got Steve's top three tips to live optimal on part one. Um, so, if you want to hear those, go back and listen to that. They were great. Um, what I'd like to do now is, uh, we'll close this one in a different way since we've already gotten your top three tips. Um, two questions. First question is what would you tell the 25 year old version of yourself? (laughs) Oh yeah. I, so, so for example, I went through this idea that antioxidants were one of the major ways of slowing down the aging process and and not realizing that the antioxidant defense system was dynamic and the trade-offs were usually negative if you did that. So, you know, I certainly made a lot of mistakes along those lines. So, passing on those that information about, you know, future insights back to my earlier self would probably be, um, uh, would be good. But the, the other thing would be um, that um, the not to be afraid of those things that are uncomfortable. You know, that in, in exploring, for example, psychology, I became more comfortable around people whom I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, people would do strange things. And, you know, I had that same kind of prejudice that 99% of people have that, to assume that everybody in the world thinks the same way that I do. Right. You know, and I, I run across somebody who's, you know, immediately suspicious and thinks that there are ulterior motives going on. And now I go, oh, that's how he thinks <laughs> or she thinks. Right. And, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't um, upset me because it, it's not like it's a personal attack on me. It's more just their admission that that's their native way of thinking. And that um, I think my life would have been happier if I had had that kind of um, uh, ease and comfort with a greater portion of people around me mm-hmm. rather than feeling like I was um, uh, a stranger in a strange land. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Very, it's, <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's the the... Uh, you know, the personal side of things, but there's always the information side of things. Yeah. But, you know, what I've learned about information is that um, your knowledge grows with age and study and experience, but your ignorance always grows faster than your knowledge does. So as you become smarter, you become more ignorant mm-hmm. because every question you answer allows you to ask two more yep. questions. Yep. The more the more we know, the more we know we don't know. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yep. That's a good take home message. All right. All right. <laughs> Steve, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Uh, for you guys listening, go to naturalstacks.com. We'll have the video version of this along with all the links and resources um, that we talked about in this episode. Uh, please go to iTunes, leave us a five star review. Let us know how much you like the show and share the OPP with people in your life who will benefit from the things that we're talking about. Uh, I'm sure there are things that we've said that you want to share with people you know. Uh, so so please do that. Like I said, um, at the beginning of every show, this is how we help more people and, and grow this movement. So uh, keep sharing it. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Um, we'll talk to you guys next Thursday. Steve, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.